Uh, thank you, Senior Leader Poppy, um, for inviting me to speak this morning, and to all of you, the members of the Washington Ethical Society. It is really such a pleasure to be among you. I confess I'm a little nervous, which is unusual for me. I don't usually mind speaking in front of crowds. Um, and you feel like a very comfortable, nice group of people. But I'm nervous because I'm so used to talking about and teaching from a God-centered tradition. Uh, so I recognize that our context this morning is certainly different. I hope that I can navigate these differences gracefully. And if I slip, that you will be gracious and only fault the messenger and not the message. <laughs> Uh, what I want to discuss with you this morning is deeply important to me as a Jewish woman, as a rabbi, but mostly as an American concerned about our country and as a human being concerned about the dignity of other human beings. This weekend, we celebrate the birthday of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. We celebrate Dr. King for his work and for his words while noting that he was a person as prone to flaws as the rest of us. We honor him as something of a modern-day prophet. King did for America in the middle of the 20th century what Isaiah and Jeremiah and Amos did for the ancient Israelites. They each held up a mirror to their societies. They showed us who we were, and they did not let us look away. But rather than allow the people to despair when confronted with the truth of their reflection, each of these men gave voice to the hope that we could be better a closer, truer version of society, which King called the beloved community, and with a great deal of effort that we could be more holy and more whole. Dr. King painted a vision of a better, more just future and insisted that this could be achieved not at some faraway hour, but now, today, by the people with him and around him. And the speech that embodied this vision 50 years ago, delivered here in Washington at a rally known, as, of course, as the March on Washington. Its proper title, however, was the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. And there is quite a bit that gets lost in the elision from that full title down to just the march. It's not so different from what gets lost when we conflate the civil rights movement into the person of Dr. King as we tend to do every January. One man stands in for hundreds of thousands, a single march for innumerable actions, one demand, racial equality, for a complicated and multifaceted legislative and social policy agenda. And there are three great dangers, I think, in this way of remembering. First, the lionizing or demonizing of one individual, everyone else gets let off the hook. We teach ourselves to leave great work to great men or women, and we train ourselves to wait for saviors. In my faith tradition, the savior has not yet come, uh, and will not come, actually, uh, until ordinary people do the work that is necessary in order to affect the repair of the world. Or told another way, it is like the dream of Rabbi Zusia who dreams that he has died and is being held to account before a heavenly court. He is heartbroken that in weighing his life, his deeds fall so short of the great model of Moses. But God, in this moment, turns to him and says, Zusia, my heart is broken, not because you were not like Moses. My heart is broken because you were not like Zusia. 
Secondly, when the work of many years is boiled down to the achievements of a few victorious moments, we forget how hard social change is. The March on Washington that we remember from 1963 was not the first March on Washington for jobs and equality that was planned. The first march was planned in 1941, organized by A. Philip Randolph and a whole bunch of other people, who was then president of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, the first predominantly black labor union. Blacks had benefited less than other groups from the New Deal programs during the Great Depression, and continuing racial discrimination excluded them from defense jobs in the early 1940s, when President Franklin Roosevelt showed very little inclination to take much action on the issue, Randolph called for a march on Washington by 50,000 people. After repeated efforts to persuade Randolph and his fellow leaders that a march would be inadvisable, not to mention politically inconvenient, Roosevelt issued Executive Order 8802 in June of 1941, forbidden discrimination by any defense contractors and establishing the Fair Employment Practices Committee to investigate charges of racial discrimination. The march on Washington was then canceled because they'd won. And by 1944, two million African Americans would be employed in defense work. There were 23 years between the first planned march and the one that we celebrate today. But the central issues of the two marches were basically the same. Equal access to the jobs that would allow people to live with dignity and racial equality before the law. Most of the people involved in years of the struggle for civil rights did not live to see the triumphs of the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act in the mid and late 1960s. But if they had not taken action in their own time, beginning a 100 years earlier, those later victories would never have come. Lo alecha hamlacha ligmor. It is not ours to complete the work, but neither are we free to desist from it. Lastly, in conflating a complex and multifaceted agenda into a single issue, in this case racial equality, we run the very real danger of declaring victory and moving on before the work is actually finished. As a country, we had already done that at least once before when we fought the Civil Civil War, passed the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the Constitution, but ended Reconstruction without properly establishing either the new status of former slaves or dealing with the real problems of healing the needs of white and black Southerners. This left people vulnerable to the systemic discrimination, poverty, and physical danger of the Jim Crow South, which emerged in its wake, Unless we comfort ourselves with the illusion that this problem was only regionally specific, let's remember the fate of the civil rights movement when it pivoted its focus to the agenda of the cities of the North and the Midwest. The movement was about racial equality, make no mistake. But in our collective retelling of this major episode of American life, we only tell half of the story. The March on Washington, both marches, actually, had two agendas, not one. There was a social agenda, a racial justice agenda, made manifest in Dr. King's vision of children not being judged by the color of their skin, of the day when all God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, join hands and sing. But the organizing documents of the march refer to the brother evils of American society racial discrimination, and 
economic deprivation. We tell the story of the battle with the first evil brother. We tell it comfortably, and I think we tell it well. Fifty years later, the stories of the fight against racial discrimination remain profound touchstones for many of us. The integration of Little Rock Central High School, Rosa Parks and the Montgomery bus boycott, freedom riders in Mississippi, letters from a Birmingham jail. These may have been the stories that you were telling or talking about this weekend. Some of our proudest moments as liberals are linked to the civil rights movement, to pictures of just the dream that King described of blacks and whites committed to nonviolence, dressed in suits and fedoras or skirts and heels, carrying picket signs, marching, arms linked from Selma to Montgomery, or filling the National Mall like a human river, all flowing together inexorably on a tide of idealism and gorgeous rhetoric towards justice. Through the courage of these individuals, in their determination and their grace, I see the version of our country that I am most proud of. And yes, I think I probably romanticize it terribly. But I suspect I'm also not alone in this tendency. I think that we tell the story of the civil rights movement through the frame of the social agenda because that's where we've actually seen success. Segregated lunch counters are literally museum pieces. And our public life is now integrated, albeit imperfectly, all the way to the White House. We beat Brother Crow down, so to speak. We won. And I suppose it is natural that in our memory of great events, we dwell on our victories. But the economic agenda was equally important, and it is the half of the dream that is still deferred. That other brother, the evil of economic deprivation, of economic injustice, of papa may have and mama may have, but God bless the child that's got his own. Well, that brother is powerful and hard to talk about and even harder to defeat. Economic justice was mentioned more than once in the I Have a Dream speech, though I would be surprised if many people remember it. In the very first paragraph, Dr. King talks about how the Negro lives on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. But as the prophet Joel said, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. And in his address to 250,000 people gathered in front of the Lincoln Memorial, it was a young John Lewis then the chairman of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, who put it out there in his very first line. He said, We march today for jobs and freedom, but we have nothing to be proud of. For hundreds and thousands of our brothers are not here. They have no money for their transportation, for they are receiving starvation wages or no wages at all. So let's start there with John Lewis's challenge. First, I hope that just for the purposes of our conversation this morning, we all agree or we can agree that we have a national problem of economic injustice. I don't want to spend a lot of time on statistics. It's really boring in speeches. Um, And I will say, if you're interested in this, the Center for American Progress, the Economic Policy Institute, the Shriver Report on Women, even the Congressional Budget Office, all have recently put out excellent, compelling reports 
about growing income disparity, about the achievement and education gaps by race and gender, about the consequences of shredding the social safety net on state and national levels, and the persistent and pernicious unemployment and underemployment rates. But just for the sake of drawing a representative picture, let's talk about our city for a minute. Consider this. Here in Washington, D.C., the top fifth of earners in the district make an average of 29 times the income of the bottom fifth. And just to put that into numbers, if that helps you to picture, an average household salary of $259,000 compared with $9,100. That's the difference between the top fifth and the bottom fifth. According to 2010 data collected by D.C. Fiscal Policy Institute, and as the Post reported, the Institute's report was the result of two vastly different economies in the district. One is populated by college students thriving on well-paying information and government jobs, or clergy jobs. I think I'm safely in that category, too, just to put it out there, though my salary is not the one that I mentioned. Uh, The other... The other version of our city is full of people lacking higher education, scrambling for ever lower paying work. And though the district represents the lowest poverty rate of any metropolitan area in the country in 2010, so those numbers are good numbers in the context of our country. The median wages for DC residents without advanced degrees haven't increased more than 1% in the last 30 years. For college graduates, the growth of their incomes, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say our income in that same period, is up more than 30%. What we see in D.C. is happening all over the country. We are watching the liftoff of the super rich, the hallowing out of the middle class, and we have legitimate cause to fear the destruction of the programs that protect the very poorest Americans, just as they are needed more desperately than ever. And most terrifying of all, without radical change to the structure of our economy, it will just keep getting worse. When civil rights leaders talked about economic justice in the middle of the 20th century, one set of concerns revolved around removing the racial barriers to entry into the middle and upper classes. This is, I think, for the most part, the kind of economic justice that we are more comfortable talking about as a society. This is the genteel face of the economic struggle of the movement. And for the most part, this is where success was enjoyed as well. The opening up of formerly segregated universities, of professions, and trade unions created real opportunity for many people. But there was another face, embodied perhaps most powerfully by that of the black sharecropper, whose suffering and concerns couldn't be fixed with the same middle-class solutions. They couldn't be fixed at the ballot box either, because the crux of these problems weren't social or political, though he had these problems too. The deepest problems... They were just straight-up economic. Sharecroppers and their families were being eaten by machines. Well, machines and insecticide and genetically modified disease-resistant crops, which were just much more productive. As our technology for the production of food improved, we needed fewer and fewer people to do the work which in earlier times had occupied whole communities. This wasn't a new problem. And it's not new that I'm telling this to you. I don't think this is information you don't have. I just think it's something we have to think about differently. 
This problem is the natural consequence of the Industrial Revolution, of the success of emerging technology, and of an economic philosophy that preferences efficiency over people. There are many winners in this system. To some degree, most of us are winners so far. But in this system, some people lose. And I think more people are going to be losing faster than ever, and we have to begin to think about this differently. The original Luddites, they understood this problem, and they tried to smash the industrial looms that were pounding them out of existence in the British Midlands. They lost. Southern sharecroppers, both black and white, they also recognized this problem, but hamstrung by the racial injustices of the day, by American conceptualizations of capitalism, by who really has power in our country, and maybe doomed from the start, the sharecroppers lost too. But the people, whether they were Luddites or sharecroppers or those who are not benefiting from the structure of our economy now, the people don't disappear. For the most part, the pattern has been that they move to larger towns and cities. They take jobs in emerging technologies and fields, like the new textile factories that spread across the south and in the lower ends of the service economy. Domestic workers, elevator operators, while there are those industries, janitors. And these people push their children to move a little closer to the realization of a new American dream. Some of these people at different points in our history, have managed to squeeze ahead. But many have been trapped in a descending spiral of poor education, the downward depression of wages, the evaporation of whole industries, family dissolution, and social degradation. And so the unfinished half of the civil rights movement's agenda for jobs, full unemployment with dignified work and wages, that's how they talked about it. That's how we need to talk about it. Full unemployment for dignified work and wages becomes more important and more elusive than ever. And with the rise of what has been called the second machine age, what in past generations had been dismissed as the natural if unfortunate human cost of progress, this is going to be our greatest challenge as a society. Thomas Friedman talked about this in a column last week in the New York Times, which you may have read. But this kind of information, this kind of thinking, this idea for which, by the way, there's not yet any answer, but we desperately need to find one, it's an idea that is too important to get lost in the juggernaut of a 24-hour news cycle where we move from thing to thing to thing. This one is worth keeping hold of. The Second Machine Age, it's the title of a new book by Eric Benjolfsen and Andrew McAfee. It argues that the first machine age the one we call the Industrial Revolution, it was about creating power systems that would augment human muscle. Machines could do what we could do, basically, but without needing to stop to eat or to sleep and without ever demanding a pay raise. Each successive invention in that age delivered more and more power, but they all required humans to make decisions about them. And so while you needed less human muscle power, you needed more human brain power. Thus, education became the golden ticket to relevance and success. But in the second machine age, the time that we may find ourselves in now, we are beginning to automate our cognitive tasks, more of the control systems that determine what we use all of this power for. 
And in many cases today, artificially intelligent machines can make better decisions than humans. It's uncomfortable to hear, but it is the emerging reality. And so, Friedman summarizes, human and software machines may increasingly be substitutes for each other, not complements. And with the combination of the exponential, the digital, and the combinatorial power that is being bred into our new machines, you can see on the plus side, and we enjoy this all the time, you might be enjoying it in your pocket right now, our greater ability to improve our world. But we will also see that we will use more technology and fewer people than ever before. And this will happen faster and faster and faster. The challenge of the American interpretation of capitalism, which I don't think we have ever faced squarely, is that we are a society that links our human value to our production value, whether in widgets or in great works of art. We are defined and given value largely by our work, And our social contract, even the fundamental structure of our society, is predicated on human labor. But we live in a world where the fruits of our most powerful creations increasingly make it so that we just don't need to produce nearly as much. And we have yet to figure out how to recalibrate our value in light of that reality. Or, put another way, what do we do with the people who are no longer needed to work at any wage? What happens to the people? Soon their ranks will include a frightening number of people who look remarkably like you and like me. How do we ensure that a permanent reduction in jobs is not a permanent reduction in human value? The great triumph of the civil rights movement was that it forced us to really look at one of our deepest collective wounds, the legacy of slavery and the ongoing inequality of Americans based on race. And as much as the nation flinched at what we saw in the mirror, we did not look away. Great leaders and ordinary citizens worked together to craft a multifaceted agenda to address the complexities of the issue. There were legal responses, policy responses, educational responses, artistic responses, and relational responses. The activists who were part of this fight, they grew weary. They worked hard, but they did not give up hope. And they persisted so that now we tell their stories with admiration and, at least I feel for myself, a little bit of envy. Would that we had all been a part of the generation who fought that great battle so valiantly and achieved so much. But the work that they left unfinished the evil brother of economic injustice, he mocks us still. By our choices, we have made him powerful, maybe more powerful than ever before. But if he is strong, we must be stronger. And if he is smart, we must be smarter. I believe that there will be no saviors, and there may be no king. But Zeusias, well, those we have in abundance if we have the wisdom to recognize them, to recognize ourselves. And that may be the saving of us all. I don't know what the answers are, but I do think that we are finally identifying a real problem. And that, of course, means that now the work must begin.